Today's message is focused on a passage that is one of my favorites, one that I memorized when I was in my younger days. And uh, it's Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 4. So if you want to turn to that right now, we're going to stay right in that section today. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Now the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Christ followers in the city of Colossae. Colossae nowadays is in modern West Turkey, so you have an idea of where it is geographically. It turns out that the Apostle Paul never visited this church, but it was founded by someone that he mentored and discipled, and that man's name was Epaphras. We could do a whole message, even though there's not much about Epaphras mentioned in the scripture, we could do a whole message on Epaphras, but we won't do that. But just to say that Paul had built into this man in such a way that he founded the church of Colossae. And as a result, we are blessed all these many, many centuries later with the book of Colossians. Now, you may have heard the phrase, and maybe have said it even along the way, that person is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Now, whether you've ever said it or not, have you ever heard it? Is that a familiar phrase in our culture? All right. But is that true? I would, I would suggest to you today that Paul and God, more importantly, have a different twist on this. Let's take a look, because it may turn out, in actuality, that to be heavenly-minded is actually to be earthly good. If you're really, truly heavenly-minded, that is. So what does it mean to be truly heavenly-minded? I want you to look at that first word in the first verse of Colossians chapter 3. And it's the word if or since. It depends on the translation. The good old King James version, the authorized version, as it's sometimes called, says, if ye then be risen with Christ. Other translations say, since you have been risen with Christ. They both point to the same truth. There's a prerequisite. This is what I want you to see first in this passage. There's a prerequisite, an indispensable prior condition for what we're going to unpack today from this passage. What is that condition? What does the word if relate to? It's saying if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are born again, then all the rest of this follows. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and then 4 to 7. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, some of us think that that phrase is later on, in the famous verses 8 and 9. But Paul emphasizes this in the beginning of that chapter. And then he says this, And God raised us up, who's us, those that are born again, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Just a few verses away from that, he says this, the famous passage that most of us have memorized. And that is 
for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So the question that is posed to all of us today, I don't care how long you've been in the church, I don't care how long you have been in American evangelicalism, let's call it, the question is, are you saved? And you might say, Tim, why are you asking that question? We know all these people here. Well, we know most of them, right? Most of us have made professions of, of faith. John just finished a series on what it means to be born again. I know of people who don't like to go to certain churches because, after all, the gospel is just always presented over and over again. I don't know that we could ever hear the gospel presented too many times. For no other reason than it reminds us of what we have been saved from if you're a believer. And then, of course, in any gathering, there's probably one or two people that have not experienced that. And I would dare say that's true today. And I pray it will always be that way at the Naples gathering every week that we meet. So the question is, are you saved? Now, I'm not going to go into a presentation of the gospel, but I will give you this one little ditty, if I can say it that way. The scripture gives us the indication that the gospel is as simple as A, B, C. Maybe you've heard this before. It's a great way to present the gospel to a friend. Admit that you are a sinner, Romans 3.23. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is to trust him and his finished work on the cross. And then C is to confess, agree with God and repent. And if someone does that and prays and surrenders their life to Christ, they will be saved. That's what the scripture teaches us. Now you say, that's too simple. No, the gospel is simple, but is deeply profound and as so many truths in the scripture, it's life-transforming. All the truths of scripture are life-transforming. So if you are born again here today, and most of us are, then you should want to do the will of God, right? That's one of the signs that you're born again. You should want to do the will of God. And when you see a command of the Lord, a precept, an instruction, your heart and soul should say, yes, Lord. Not, oh, no, not another rule and regulation. If you have that particular approach to the commands of the Scripture, then that might be an indication you need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Or at least to see if you are really actually in a place where you are filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, living the life that God intends. Would you not agree with me today that it's the will of God to be focused on the things of God the things that God is focused on, the things that are rooted in God himself. And so the prerequisite is to be born again. But then the Apostle Paul opens this up to the second concept that we are looking at today, which is the passion that the believer is supposed to have, the passion. Colossians 3, 1b says, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What's the definition of passion? A compelling, please listen to this, a compelling disposition of emotion, intense affection, and I love this, a pursuit to which one is devoted. The NIV says, set your hearts on the things above. But frankly, a better translation from the original language of the word zeteo is to seek the things above. To seek the things above by thinking about them, by meditating on them, by reasoning about them, to inquire about them. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we're doing what we're doing at 1015 today and other Bible studies that are taking place. We are meditating, we're reasoning, we're thinking about the things above. It's not just about equipping ourselves. 
It's about being equipped to share the truths of God with others who so desperately need them. And so here is the heart disposition of the believer to seek. Again, that original word means coveting earnestly, striving after, running with abandon, stretching to reach the tape of the finish line. Now a little personal story. I know it doesn't look like it now, but a few years ago I was a runner. I went with my... It's not, I don't have a runner's body anymore. I never really had a runner's body, but I ran some races. I ran a number of 5Ks, a number of half marathons on the way to preparing to do a couple of marathons. And I ran three marathons, two of them in New York. And the reason I tell you that is because the only reason I did that, I had no particular affection for running. The reason I did it was to raise funds for a rotary organization that I was a part of for the end of polio around the world. Some of you have heard of that cause, end polio now. And so I raised money, awareness, and I did it as a Christian man. Forget about being a pastor. I was a pastor in the community for many years. I did that as a member of the Rotary, as a Christian who wanted to do something to impact my community and do something that would bless people. That had nothing to do with my ordination or my rev title. And so the Lord enabled me to do that. I'll tell you more about that perhaps another time in the context of another message, but I have to say that what I want to focus on here is that, that passion that, that I had to get to the final tenth of the 26.2 miles. Now, if you know anything about a marathon, I don't care what anybody tells you, you're not going to run that marathon well unless you're ready when you go to the starting line. If you are prepared, you will finish, and you will finish tired. You'll be spent but you'll finish. I'll never forget that first time in 2009 as I got to Central Park and got to that last stretch of a couple of tenths of mile, and I caught, now the tape was broken way before me, believe me, there were thousands of people that beat me to that line. But the veritable tape for me was crossing that finish line. And when I crossed that finish line, I just, I, I literally stopped and I went, in fact, I collapsed on the ground, not out of, I, I was tired, but I collapsed on the ground, but out of elation. That's the kind of passion that God wants us to live with until the moment that we die or Jesus comes back again. That's the passion that God wants us to live with, with seeking the things above, raised up with him in the heavenlies. Scriptural examples for just a moment here. Let me give you two of them. One is positive, one is not so positive. The first one is positive, Hebrews chapter 11. The canyon of heroes, those descriptions of our, the great heroes of the faith. Hebrews chapter 11, he, uh, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. What insight into Moses' life that we wouldn't have unless the writer of Hebrews had revealed that to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses rejected riches that he had in his palm. He was number two to the Pharaoh and number two to the man that was in command of all the world at that point and he rejected it and he chose God and he chose suffering he didn't cho choose an easy life of retirement he went into the fire 
There's an example of Moses having the right perspective and the passion to follow after God. But there's another example that we have in the scripture, and it's also in Hebrews, but it's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 17. And it says this, make sure, this, I'm going to start with verse 16 actually, and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau. He's talking to people in the church. No irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears. He sought it with tears. Tears, doesn't mean, t- tears do not mean repentance. Tears might mean that you got caught and you feel bad. True repentance is not just about tears. He sought it with tears. He wanted to get back to the blessing, back to what he thought was God. And why? Because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. Here is a man in contrast that rejected God and his incredible blessings and chose immediate gratification, a meal, food, rejected his entire inheritance. Back to Ephesians 2 for a moment, verses 6 and 7. Paul says in Ephesians, paralleling what we find in Colossians, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens with Christ Jesus. So as a believer, guess what? I don't want this to sound spooky and ethereal. As a believer, you are there. You are there. There's no separation. There's no long distance. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, but we are there in his presence and he with us and in this life through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. In biblical times, sitting at the right side of the king was the highest honor anyone could even dream or imagine. But I want you to think for a moment with me what being seated with Christ would be in comparison. Being seated with Christ in the presence of God the Father is the greatest honor anyone could possibly imagine. And spiritually, we are there. But how many of you know that being there does not necessarily indicate that you are really there? As you know, you can be in the presence of someone and not really be there. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now you know where I'm going with this, right? Illustration in marriage. Now, my wife is sitting here right now, and she knows this tends at times to be true. You can be in the presence of your spouse, but not paying attention to your spouse. And this is not just guys with the women. This is women with the guys. Now, I'm going to tell you a little quick story about how I learned an important lesson. I call this my black bag disaster. One day, my wife... And I were doing some cleaning up, and she found some very, very precious materials from her younger days, uh, really important documents, special things, and she put them in one of those tough black, you know, garbage bags. And then there was another bag that was filled with garbage. Those two bags were put on the side, and my wife said to me, my wife said to me, and she reminded me that she said this to me, she said, Whatever you do, leave the bag on the left alone and throw up the other one. Don't touch the other bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm running around doing my thing. The next morning I got up. Ah, two bags of garbage. Great. I love getting rid of garbage. I put them both out. And the sanitation guys came by and suddenly that bag was gone. When that bag was gone, I suddenly realized 
and remember what she had told me the night before, but I wasn't paying enough attention to make the connection that next day. And so, as you might imagine, that was a disaster. Now, the only reason I'm alive today to tell the story is because there's a good ending to this. We called the sanitation department. They asked us what time did they come. We went to the landfill, which, by the way, was one of the largest in the world at the time. And, I, and some of you know, in Staten Island, we were known for the dump. That man said, meet me over here in this section of the landfill. He took me there, and he said, what time was it? Well, it was 6.15, I think, if I remember correctly, it was about 6.15. He goes, come over here. Um, it's going to be in this section. He said, 6.15. He walked me over, and he literally, in the midst of acres and acres of garbage, pointed to the bag. He says, this it? And I said, uh, yes, it is, sir, and you just saved my life. In that moment, I learned a couple of lessons. But the most important lesson was pay attention to your wife and listen to her, especially at critical moments. Now, everyone, the truth of the matter is, is that we can be seated with Christ but not paying attention to what he's saying. We can be distracted very easily. But God calls us to seek and focus on the things above. His doings, his thinkings, his feelings, Yes, God has feelings. How do you think we got feelings? He created us with feelings. We're made in his image. God feels. All that is connected to God's character. And the context, many of these things are revealed in chapter 3. And it's not the purpose of this message to get into the detail of that. But read the rest of the chapter and you see all the practical things that we are supposed to be seeking and focused upon. But the third thing I want you to see here is that we are to have a preoccupation not just a passion. And this ties into what I just said, but the, the scripture says, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. And a preoccupation definition would be to engage fully, to engross the mind. Now this is normally used negatively. People say, oh, that person's preoccupied over there. They're not paying attention to me. In this case, we're using it in a positive, absolutely necessary way to be Engrossed in the mind, engaged fully throughout the day for the rest of our lives while we are going about doing God's will and whatever our particular tasks are. Now, I remember being preoccupied when I fell in love with my wife. This, this message is probably most of the illustrations are going to be about my wife. She doesn't know this, by the way. But I was preoccupied with my wife. When I, when I began to fall in love with my wife, and, and I'm using that word in a, in a completely clear conscience way, I fell in love with my life, and all I could think about when I woke up was Anne-Marie. Yeah, I read the scripture and everything. Thank you, God, for Anne-Marie. And then I would focus on Anne-Marie throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, and, and, that's what happens when you fall in love, right? God wants us to have that kind of affection. Jesus wants us to have that kind of preoccupation where our thoughts are focused upon him. We set our minds on the things above, not on earthly things, in terms of our focus. Now, how do you know that your mind is set on the things above? Well, it will affect your speech. You will not be giving out coarse jokes. You will not be involved with gossip. You will not be involved allowing yourself to be angry in an ungodly way. And why do I say ungodly? Because there's a godly kind of anger. You will not be caught lying. You will not, white lies, black lies, whatever, a lie is a lie. You will not be involved with slander. You will take a look at your time. How are you using your time? Too much time watching cable news? Too much time streaming? Too much time in social media? Too much time focusing on sports? I didn't say don't focus on those things, but too much time? Preoccupied with stuff? How easy is that to happen in our American culture? 
and then it will affect the way you think about money. Everything that we have belongs to God, but God gives us a portion of that focused for our needs, our family needs, and then he wants us to invest in the kingdom. And I have to say, kudos to the Naples Gathering, because this group, no one does this perfectly in any church, but this group has a focus and a passion to invest in the kingdom of God. And that's demonstrated by the financial report that we heard last week. So thank you and thank God that this is a, a congregation that is not stingy with their money for God. How about that? Praise the Lord for that because that's going to lead to great fruit as time goes on. We are yet to see what God is going to do through this smaller in contrast to other congregations. It's a small congregation with big hearts for God. May we continue to cultivate that in our church life. And then your priorities. God and church. And, your, and Is your priority, are you more excited about the football game that's coming up next week? Are you more excited about whatever you love in your area of arts? Or, you know, in, in our culture, sports and arts are the two idols. And we could easily be caught idolatrizing such things. God wants nothing to be in the way of him being number one. Now, we've looked at some of these what's, but for a few moments now, we're going to look at the why's in these last couple of verses. The next thing I want you to see in verse 3 is the position that we have, the position that we have as believers, and how it impacts what Paul is trying to communicate to us about the disposition of our hearts and our minds. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You have died. Now, I'm not going to read it right now, but all you have to do is read Romans chapter 6 to understand, as a believer, what it means for you to have died. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have a choice. We are no longer under its power. We know, but now we have to make a decision to say no to sin and at the same time, yes, to the Holy Spirit and to Christ who lives within us. You can't just say no to sin unless you are simultaneously yielded to the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.11 says, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's as though we are standing up in a coffin. Now imagine me in a coffin, but I'm alive. My eyes are open, but I'm in a coffin. I'm dead to sin. And the things that have in the past tempted me and drawn me in, no longer have power of me, and instead of me looking this way, I'm in the coffin looking up. Lord, I'm keeping my eyes fixed on you. Lord, thank you for the freedom you give me from sin. I know, Lord, that I'm not perfect. I want to live a blameless life before you, Lord, and when I slip and I fall, help me, Lord, to quickly do, quickly do inventory and a short account and confess and repent and make myself accountable. That's the picture of the believer in the coffin, dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And so, spiritual passion of the heart and preoccupation of the mind are only possible because of the prerequisite experience that has taken place in the believer's life. And it results in a position that we now have with and in Christ. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And please listen to this. And if this is not enough, Paul gives another motivation for seeking the things above and setting the mind on those things. 
Do you ever have the sense, I don't care how old or how young or how young you think you are or how old you think you are, but as a believer, do you ever have the sense, even with the blessings of being a believer in this life, that there must be something more? There's something more than this life. And you're right, there is. This is not it. I remember one time uh, listening to a song up in my attic back in New York. Celine Dion's Christmas recording had just come out. And I loved the whole thing. It was fun to listen to. I was by myself. I always like to get alone with it, you know, listen on my earphones to a new recording. I got to the prayer. And as I was listening to the prayer, I felt like I was being kind of ushered into heaven. If, if you remember the first time maybe you heard, if you ever heard Bocelli and, De, and, and Celine Dion do it. And then when I got to the end of it, and... And that long note that he held out, now there are people in this audience right now that can hold a note that long. And one of them is in the back over there. And another woman is right over here to my right. So there are people that can hold out notes like Bocelli. But when Bocelli held out that note that went on forever, I thought, this is an auditory, this is like an auditory glimpse of heaven for me. I felt like I was being ushered into heaven in that moment. And then I thought to myself, the Bible says that no eye has seen nor ear has heard Ear has heard what? You think of the most beautiful moment you've ever had listening to music for your subjective perspective, from your subjective perspective, right? It doesn't even compare. What in the world or in the heavens will music be like in heaven? We know there's going to be music in heaven. God created it. It's going to be part of what we do throughout eternity in worship. Not the only thing we do, but part of what we do. And I thought, wow. We have something to look forward to even in that way. Now, in the first three verses, Paul takes us back to the time we were born again, and then he takes us to heaven. See, the prerequisite is our spiritual birthday. Our passion and our preoccupation is our life in Christ from the time that we're born again until we die or Jesus returns again. And then we have the promise of the life to come. The promise, verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And the word here for appears is the idea of plainly recognized. It will be plainly recognized. No one will be guessing what's going on when Christ appears. And they will thoroughly understand what is going on at that moment. And you're either going to be filled with joy and excitement and elation, or you're going to be filled with dread and fear. It all depends on the prerequisite. Have you fulfilled that? But here we're talking about the revelation of the bride. Is there anything more beautiful than the moment that a bride is revealed in a wedding ceremony? Here we go. I remember Anne Marie. On April 9th, 1988, in the back of the auditorium of our church, In that beautiful bride's dress, I actually wrote her a song and I sang her a song before she came down. I almost didn't make it through. And she came down, I thought, this is way too much for me. It's too beautiful. I could barely contain myself as she was coming down the aisle. I don't even know how to express to you that the emotions were at that point. And then I had the opportunity to watch it happen four more times with my girls. Two of them in the same year. I can't imagine in horizontal relationships, anything more beautiful than that except for one thing. And that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, if this is so beautiful in the human realm, can we imagine what it will be like when the bride, the church, is revealed to the groom? 
the risen, ascended, beautiful Savior. This betrothal is complete. If you're a believer, you're betrothed. You're currently engaged in prep for the big day. The big day has not come. So all this seeking, heart-setting, thinking on the things above is all prep for a day when eternity begins in his presence forever. This time, it's not just spiritually true, but in every way it will be practically and physically true. All the truths I have sought in these moments to unpack today are all leading to the day when we will be physically in heaven. And 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see... Only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. Even as I am fully known. Listen, my brothers and sisters, life is a speck compared to eternity. But we need to see that we are in a spectrum. A spectrum is a position on a scale between two extreme or opposite points. The spectrum for us is the moment that we were born again to the moment that we die or Christ comes back and we prepare then for eternity. You see, this life, this life, and that life, we're talking about our earthly life and the heavenly life to come. So here is where I want to land. Some questions for you. Are you raised up with Christ? The prerequisite of being born again? Are you elevated? I call this elevation. Are you seeking the things above? Passionate? That's, yeah, elation. Are you focused on the things above? Are you preoccupied? That's concentration. Focus on the Lord God and his things that flow from him. Do you realize that you, the bride, will be revealed with Christ, the groom? That's the promise of heaven. That is true emancipation. That's true anticipation. That's not a song about ketchup. That's a song about the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, to be dead is to be free. To be dead in this life, the sin is to be free and alive to Christ. To be dead from our earthly life is to be free, to be in heaven forever. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know about you, but I want to ramp up into heaven. I don't want it to be a shock. If I were to die right now, my hope and my belief is that it wouldn't be a shock to my system that suddenly I'm in the presence of God as a believer. I want my life to be such that it's a ramp. I am ramping up to heaven, walking with God, seeking to walk blamelessly, not perfectly, never perfectly. None of us will ever be perfect in this life. As we get ready for heaven, God is calling us to seek the things above and to ramp up in a way where we are completely his. And it's not a shock to us when that moment comes. Until that indescribable day when Christ returns in all of his glory, let's do what the word of God calls us to do. What Paul exhorts us to do in this passage, what God Almighty prescribes for our earthly lives. You know, Mark is coming right now, and he's going to be singing a song called Motions. We can't go through motions day to day. Let's not do that. Don't come to you at the end of your earthly life thinking, what if I had given everything? Do you want to stand before the Lord with a sense of regret? 
instead of a sense of settledness and gratefulness to the Lord? Set your heart and mind on things above and most importantly, Christ. Let's be heavenly minded. And to the degree we are, we will be, what? Earthly good. In fact, not just good, but great for the kingdom of God and his glory. And all the people said, Amen.